We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I am your host, Sasha Kapustina. Here, I talk to immigrants who are kicking ass in the U.S. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is Grace Ramirez, Chef Grace. She's the first Venezuelan-American on the show. She has written books and hosted TV shows all around the world. She started her career on season one of Master Chef. And in the last two years, she's been actively participating in disaster relief efforts, working with Chef Jose Andres' World Central Kitchen. First in Puerto Rico in 2017, then Bahamas and Venezuela, and for the last year in New York. During the pandemic, the organization has brought business to over 250 restaurants and saved them from having to close, and at the same time delivered over 9 million meals to New Yorkers. The city of New York has recognized Chef Grace Ramirez as a COVID hero. In this conversation, we talk about Grace's childhood in Venezuela, her having to leave right after high school because of a dictatorship taking over, her early career as a TV producer, and her first steps in the food industry. And here's our chat. My usual first question is, where did you come here from and when? And I know it's a little complicated yeah. question with you. Yeah, I was born in Miami, but my family is from Venezuela. And when I was a year old, I was taken to Venezuela to live with my grandparents. Uh, my father died when I was one. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I came back to the States when I was 10 and I lived here from 10 to 14. Then I lived in Costa Rica. Then I went back to Venezuela. And then I came back when I was 18 to go to college. So so it's my story is is a little bit tricky because I, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be born in the States. So I feel very lucky about that, even though my whole family is from Venezuela and I'm first generation, basically, that is born here. So you're sort of a third culture kid mixed traveler world citizen yeah yeah i always say it's like the relationship status on facebook it's very complicated because people are like they always get it wrong they're like oh you're from venezuela i'm like well technically no i'm from miami but my family is from venezuela uh and my mom has lived pretty much everywhere around um latin america so i've been lucky enough to have traveled you know for now she's in mexico currently living she's been there for the past year but uh, we we spent a lot of time in Mexico while I was growing up, and she lived in Brazil, in Argentina, in Uruguay, Chile. So my stepfather's from Peru. So I have I have a very broad notion of of um, of Latin America, and um, but I I've been in New York seventeen years, so I think. I'm a New Yorker at this point. <laughs> okay, we have arrived. <laughs> yeah, we've arrived, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and so growing up in Venezuela, can you think of one childhood memory that you would call, this is how my childhood looked, like this is a quintessential childhood thing for me? I had a very beautiful childhood. I was fortunate enough to be, to have lived in Venezuela that was very 
rich, not only rich as a country, but rich in culture, rich in family, rich in, it was Venezuela and Caracas was an, a very important part of Latin America. Uh, while I was growing up, you know, it was basically, you know, the, the capital of Latin America was Caracas and, and that's where my family lived. And, and it was beautiful because I grew up having a very large family, but being an only child, uh, and my my most every time I close my eyes and think about my childhood and my family, it's usually a Sunday. We're doing a Sunday barbecue or or, or you know just a paella or a pasta or numerous bountiful amount of food. Uh, so much that the table looked like always like it was bending of so much food that it was on the table, and just all the cousins together, all the family together, and and we're about you know. 70 of us you know so it was always oh wow a, a, a lot of, yeah there was always you know my grandmother was um had nine siblings and each one of them had you know two or three kids one of them have like seven children um so there was there was a lot of kids and and a lot of family members and you know and each one had like a husband and a boyfriend and a this and a that so there was just a lot of us having a laugh and um, playing with all my cousins and eating lots of lots of eating. And what was grandmother's special, most important dish? You know, my grandmother, I, I always talk about this because it's Venezuela being such an entry point to the Caribbean and, and being the country that it was back then. Um, we would, we grew up eating, you know, lamb from New Zealand, uh, brie from France. Uh, our bakeries were uh, from immigrants of uh, por Portuguese descendants. So our pastries were, I mean, divine. So it was like, it was a very rich country in the sense of culture, food. Um, my, a lot of my uncles had been to, um, to study in Mexico. So, so I, I didn't grow up thinking one food mm. I grew up eating everything you know uh, of course arepas you know a, a Sunday brunch with arepas was a big part of it like there was not I don't think one Sunday that we wouldn't eat arepas or cachapas which are uh, made of corn and there are these corn patties arepas being more savory cachapas being more sweet with cheese that's a big staple in in our in our household but um you know, now that I look back and I talk to a lot of colleagues, chefs, how, how do they grow up? And uh, I realized that it was very special to have been brought up this way, to, to have been exposed to so many different cuisines at such a young age, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we had a beautiful, like, Lebanese community in Caracas. Wow. And, and, and there, was, there was also um, an important um, Chinese community you know, in an area of Caracas. So El Bosque, you would always like on Saturday afternoons, you could eat like, you would eat in El Bosque Chinese food. And, um, and, and or if not, you go for a paella, uh, a beautiful, you know, we had a lot of, of immigrants from Spain and Italy. So it was, it was amazing to have been, like I said, exposed to, to so many different cuisines. That's so cool. I grew up with, you know, Russian cuisine. I'm from Russia and, uh, <laughs> 
when I was growing up, Russia wasn't, it was just after the collapse of Soviet Union. And so there wasn't so many foreigners there yet. Now there's more yeah. uh, different kinds of, you know, restaurants and, and there are much more variety. Growing up, I didn't have any of that. It took me a very long time to teach myself eat spice. Wow. It was an actual, like, conscious decision because I couldn't eat any Thai food, any Indian food, any Mexican food, any, any, any other thing. <laughs> and to most people, wow. Russian cuisine seems like very um, bland, but it's flavorful. It's just not, it's just never spicy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And, and it was a, another thing was when I came to the States, people would ask me like, do you cook? And I'd be like, yeah, I mean, I eat. <laughs> and so it's such a thing here people don't really cook it's not part of the yeah. culture it's part of the culture to go out and eat and I grew up with completely opposite because in Russia going to a restaurant was a, a luxury or a special occasion mm -hmm. and so what was it like for you I was lucky enough to have been brought up Venezuela is no longer like this at all it was both for me. I, I, I remember my grandfather loved going out to restaurants. Um, he had three favorites, one of them being a meat one called the Hereford Grill. And we would go there a lot. And it was, it, it was, it was a special occasion to go out. It wasn't every day. You know, we would eat at home every day. My grandmother or my grandfather or my aunt will cook every day. So I ate, I grew up in a house where, um, my mom was a single mom because my father had passed away. So we lived in my grandparents' house, but it was, it was a large house. So we had my grandfather, my grandmother, my mom, and my aunt would all live in the in this house. And every day, my, either my uncle or my cousins would come to have lunch with us. Cause so I, I grew up in that house where, you know, literally my grandfather, he was in the military so, and he would wake up very early He'll make me breakfast. Um, he'll make me my little lunchbox cooking for lunch. And my grandmother kind of will finish it off. So they, they were both great cooks. Um, and he, he's, he's an amazing cook and he loves to cook. So um, that was, you know, I would eat pretty much breakfast, lunch and dinner at home. And on weekends, we would go out mm -hmm. to, to a restaurant. Um, and, but it was a treat. But we, and we all knew as kids, like, that we were getting treated by eating at a, at a fancy restaurant, but it was quite fun um, to be able to have that luxury because all of my family members are foodies. So sounds like so it was it. good. <laughs> yeah. What did your mom do when you were growing up? My mom was a, an executive assistant to, to an oil, to the head of an oil company. Um, but she wasn't a great cook. <laughs> she was the only one that, that was like, I was like, mom, please don't. Like she would make me beans, rice and beans and like, like the basics, but she, she was not great. <laughs> Definitely like, like grandmother. She knows that like we, we make fun of her and she's like, yeah, I, she's just, it's not in her. Um, she does other things. Yeah. I mean, everyone has their own yeah. strengths, right? And uh, in one of your interviews, I think you mentioned that you growing up didn't feel like you had any special talent and you kind of doubted yourself a lot. Can you talk about it a little bit? And like, how did you overcome that? Yeah, of course. I think that looking back and, and acknowledging that grace and, and, and feeling a lot of love and, 
and empathy and and it's kind of like oh you know that's so cute that you didn't think you were talented at anything honestly do you remember the moment when you first felt that or realized that yeah I grew up thinking that because I had all kinds of learning disabilities and I wasn't smart enough I, I realized I was like I had you know dyslexia and it was very hard for me to read I didn't understand it and and I had you know I had ADD dyslexia I had all kinds of learning disabilities that are a lot of labels that I don't even like to remember how they're called because I don't I don't let that define me, but it was very hard, you know, and in, in, in your childhood, basically school defines you, right? Yeah. Like, you know, and, and so I wasn't great at anything school related I, because I had ADD. I couldn't really focus on, on anything. So I, I, I tried playing instruments and I tried and I, I would get bored and um, I was okay at sports. I did enjoy sports, but I wasn't great because I wasn't disciplined enough because of my ADD. I couldn't really focus on anything. What I did like was to act and sing and dance and perform. And back then there was like these kids in Venezuela that they were kind of like menudo, you know, they were like this boy bands and girl bands that they will perform on TV. Uh, and I always wanted to be one of those. Um, but my mom was like, no, like <laughs> you're not doing that. Like I, there's no way I'm going to take you to all these rehearsals and, and all this stuff. It was a lot. Of, it's a lot on the parents. I got to yeah. say, I don't blame her. Um, she just didn't have the time. She will work full time and my grandmother will work as well. And uh, everyone in my, in my family worked. So I was like, okay, I'm just this kid, you know, I am, I love to sing and dance. And, and I was really funny. I, I was really funny. I think I, I I've always compensated. That's what usually happens. Um, everything with with <laughs> being 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 funny, but I was also really um, sick when I was growing up. Like I had all kinds of things. Like um, no longer like that, but but I grew up like having a lot of migraines and having a lot of allergies and having a lot of stomach problems. So it was it was very um, yeah. I always felt like I was never good enough at anything, mm. right? Um, and then I started. I always had to work because. When I, by the time I was 18, I came to the States and my family had lost everything that basically the dictatorship in Venezuela had just begun. So that coincided with you graduating from school. Yeah. So I graduated from school and I came back to the States. And but so just can we not gloss over it? Yeah. Because I, I do relate to that yeah. very much because I left Russia coming here for graduate school and originally I was planning to go back to Russia and then Russia took I mean it was already going you know south but then it went really yeah. south uh, after Crimea yeah. and basically that was a cut-off moment for me I knew I was not going back um, and so what was it like for you what was that moment of decision of coming to the states was it always the plan to come for college here or were you kind of forced to to come no I, I was forced I mean it was very hard because I had you know I was 18 I had a boyfriend that I was in love with I had my family all there um and and I I, I, I honestly didn't want to leave I didn't want to leave Venezuela because all of my family was there and um oh, I'm getting emotional just talking about it because yeah. <laughs> it was very very hard um to leave my family and leave everything I loved behind yeah. to go sleep on my uncle's um, couch or my air mattress and 
and and it was very scary it felt very scary and it felt very lonely and were your was your family unsafe yeah yeah everyone was I mean I had a cousin that was kidnapped and almost um murdered and it it, it, it just took a turn I mean now it's even worse now it's it's uh, the conditions of living are I mean I don't even know how yeah. people live there to be honest and I go every year but um it was it was very hard to make that decision as an 18 year old and and I look back and I I I pat myself in the back for having taken that decision and and basically just started working and studying and because I had no choice that's what yeah. I always say like I had no choice but to succeed I had no choice but to We'll get on a bus for an hour and go to work and come back and study because there was no plan B. I couldn't go back home. I knew that I couldn't go back to Venezuela and I needed to make this plan A work for myself. When you have to leave a country for political reasons, as, as you have, it is a very sad yeah. um, story. And, and, and it's one that, that not many people can relate to. It's been brutal not to be able to go back and see my family whenever they want to or then they they can't come visit me because of visa situations. And yeah. like, my mom has never been here to visit me since I'm 18. She's never been able to come to this country because she doesn't have a visa. And because she's a meditation uh, teacher, she'd have no way to prove an income. The only way that she could come here was, it would be if I claim her as a citizen, but she doesn't want to live mm. here. She's fine where she's at. My mom couldn't even come to my wedding. Oh like, that's how hard it's been. And you're an American citizen. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. your mom could not come to your wedding. No, no, she couldn't. We couldn't get her visa. Yeah. That's insane. They denied her visa. That is crazy. My cousin couldn't come to my wedding, but I wasn't a citizen. And she was a Russian young girl who wasn't married. And so I, I get it. Like American authorities are wary of Russian girls coming over here and, you know, uh, staying, but mom, oh my God, yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. yeah. She got her visa denied. So it was, um, it was very sad. Yeah. It's been very hard. I think that the, you know, uh, the, the immigrant story is brutal. It is. <laughs> Especially also where, where you have the country that you're from is in a dictatorship or is it, And, and in turmoil suffering from yeah. yeah yeah it's very hard it is and uh i i definitely can relate to the feeling of sadness of leaving the family i mean i've been living in the states now for 10 years and you know and i talk to my grandmothers and my dad is still there and you know and now my grandmothers are older and every time i visit and i'm very fortunate that i get to go you know it's not the iron curtain still hasn't fallen even though it can happen any day but anytime i visit when we say goodbye i can tell that they're saying goodbye forever like in their mind it's their last it's the last time they see me and it's been for years yeah, it's, like it's every brutal. time i go oh that's It's so crazy. Um, it is. It's it's very hard. Um, and, you know, I've been very fortunate to have um, both passports, um, yeah. especially because of the TV work that I do. I mean, they were able to grant me. Um, I mean, my parents are from Venezuela, but, but, but it was... I mean, now you can't even get a passport from Venezuela, but I, I, was, I was fortunate enough to 
to have been able to have it and have been able to go back and forth and visit my grandmother whenever I wanted. But I know most of my friends have been, been back to Venezuela for 20 years. Yeah. You know, they haven't been able to see their family for 20 years. So it's brutal. I think that people, um, so it's, it's very fortunate when you're able to be an immigrant, but you're able to go back home. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a real luxury that I don't think people realize how lucky they are if they are able to travel back and forth. Yeah, no, absolutely. Definitely. I, and I can relate because I also have friends who, who can't go back. And sometimes, depending on how the person leaves, like I know people who left as refugees and they just can't go back mm -hmm. for years yeah. uh, until they become citizens and maybe they can go or they don't feel safe going. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, and it particularly makes me uh, sensitive, let's put it mildly, uh, to that thing when, you know, during American elections, I'm sure you've caught that every time the election happens, people are like, oh, if this outcome happens, I'm going to leave. I'm like, no, you're not. Yeah. You have no clue what that takes. Yeah, it's, it's very complicated. I don't think that if you, I think that if you have never been through it, you don't know what you're really talking about. Um, and because it's, it's, it's so hard. It's so hard to leave everything behind and, you know, and the comfort of your home, your family, your culture, that love, the language, your culture. Yeah. All of it. I think Miami for, for being Miami, and and then being the place it is that it's basically Latin America. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I love it. You just get on the, off the plane, and everyone talks to you in Spanish. <laughs> so I didn't land in a place like like my cousin. Her mom was from Puerto Rico, but she they went to live in Pittsburgh, and it was very hard for her. You know, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It wasn't hard to live in Miami as a Latino because basically everyone else was Latino. But um, you know, I, I can't imagine what it must have been coming here as a Latino kid and, and having been, you know, I don't know, in San Francisco, for example, that, yeah. that uh, I have a lot of friends that have moved there and, and, and it was a culture shock and it was very, so I feel very lucky that you had that transitional ground. Yeah. That transitional ground where my culture was basically the culture of the place. And then in New York, the world is New York. So I've, I've never felt, I mean, I have felt discrimination but not in any way I can compare to a lot of other types of discrimination in many of the different places that are like we don't want you here I I have felt the discrimination but not in that sense right. because I I can I can turn around here in New York and and and, and look at a lot of people that look like me and, and that have the same culture and, and in Miami as well yeah and so when you got to Miami is that where you went to college I went to college in Miami, yes. I always needed to work full-time and study part-time because I couldn't afford to study full-time. So I went first to college, to Miami Day Community College. And then when I started working at MTV, MTV would pay for um, some of my college tuition. So I was able to transfer to um, University of Miami. That's so cool. Yeah, I know. It was it was amazing because UM was so expensive, but and it was like a dream for me to go to UM. Uh, I obviously couldn't afford it if it wouldn't have been for MTV. Um, and then I took a year off um, to go full time to school because I it was driving me crazy. Like I, I it was taking me forever to graduate. Yeah. And then I went to Loyola in New Orleans for a year. But then 
later on in life was when I became a chef. But before we go there, but before we go there, what was the, because I, I personally have a fascination with people who make bold career switches yeah. because I'm one of those people and I always want to hear stories of people who do that and I think it's very inspiring to many people because a lot of people get stuck in the thing that 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 they're not inspired with by or they don't really want to be doing and they're doing it because their parents thought that it was a good idea and then I love bringing the stories of people making that switch and making that decision. And so you were having a successful career in television, yeah. which is, yeah. oh my God, so hard to achieve. You were having yeah. so much success. And so what, what happened? Why did you, why did you leave? You know, again, I feel very lucky to have been brought up by a mother and a grandmother, um, that were always so supportive of, of, of whatever I wanted to do. And I saw my mom have many careers and I saw my grandmother as well. She, um, you know, she would sew bathing suits and clothing and ma mainly um, bathing suits. She was an entrepreneur. Her, like now it's the, the cool yeah. world entrepreneur, but, um, and, and in my house, it was always so encouraged to do what you loved, you know? Um, and, and to trust like my mom, if there's one thing that my mom taught me and, and through her, uh, cause she became, when I was 18, she became a certified, um, meditation instructor, which she continues to do, um, was to trust and to do whatever my heart wanted to do and to trust. So there was never a, Oh no, you can't do that. Oh no, you shouldn't be doing that. Oh no. No, on the, on the opposite. It was like, go do what makes you happy. Go be happy. Now, financially, they were a disaster, <laughs> um, but they were happy. <laughs> so for me, it was always very scary to try to find this middle ground of, yes, being happy, but being financially stable for me was very important because I saw my parents have it all, lose it all, have it all, lose it all, have it all, lose it all. Um, so I've always been very cautious of that because I'm like, I, I don't want to be broke again. Like, I mean, I, I, I've been broke too many times and I, I, I just don't want to do it. It's very scary it feeling. It, it makes me anxious just talking about it. My hands start, my palms start sweating. So for me, it was like work hard, work hard, work hard, have something. So, you know, I bought myself a little apartment in Miami. I had my car. I was like very kind of like that kid that I was doing things by the book. That's amazing. You bought an apartment. Yeah. I, by the time I was 24. No, I, I mean, looking back, I don't even know how I did all these things, guys. Like I'm, I'm telling you, if, if you're, if you would have asked me how I did all of this, I have no idea. I have no idea how, I think it was my, my dad's guardian angel, my great grandmother's guardian angel, my grandmother's guardian angel, my cousins are being all these people that were, past in my life just kind of guiding me because I was so young and you know I was I was supervising producer on tv when I was 24 I mean I was very young like I look back and I'm like I I have friends that are 24 that are I'm like oh my god how are you know no offense to them but I'm trying to like mentor them and being like I do a lot of mentorship and and I'm like okay come on guys I mean Mind you, there's a lot of people who are very successful at 24 these days, 
but to me, 24 looking back was very young. Yeah, it is. And, and, and having had all of that, um, I, I don't, I have no idea how I did it, but I, I moved from Miami to New York to work on, to continue working on television. I was working at MTV at the time and MTV at the time was very, very cool. We were interviewing everyone and everyone, the biggest, you know, still the biggest artist alive from Beyonce to Britney Spears to Chris, well, Christina Aguilera is no longer that relevant, but you get it. It was like, yeah, you know, JC and, 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 you know, and we did the movie awards and that was a thing as well. But, but I gotta say one thing that was really interesting was that the common denominator of most, not all, I'm not, I don't want to generalize because it's not fair, but most of these artists, they were not happy. They were not happy people. Um, most of them, you would see them, you know, you would interview them and you could feel their sadness and their unhappiness. I think, and I think it's, it's a very, it was very interesting for me at such a young age, understand that money and fame does not equal happiness. And I think that when you're young, all you want is to be rich or be famous. I was not rich. I was not famous, but I was, I was exposed to all these people and I would go to their parties and I would, I mean, I was lucky enough to be hanging around them and seeing how most of them were, were not happy. We're not happy. And I think that, that it was such a trap. It was so, and I think that when you get to that level of success, you know how you say, Oh, when I do this, I'm going to be happy. When I get there, I'm going to be happy. When I, when I have all this money or I have that house where I am, that I'm going to be happy. And I think that when you get there and you realize that's not making you happy, that it's something else that you need to work on. And it's internal deep work yeah. that you need to do that is going to make you happy. So I was always through my mom's um, meditation um, teachings, and she's part of this center called the Isha Jude Center. And, and I was always doing that. And I realized I needed to cultivate this internal experience and cultivate this internal work in order for me to be happy. And I always needed to do what really made me happy. And what was that emotional work for you? Was it like self-love or self-acceptance? What was it? Well, for me, it's always been this, um, I mean, my mom, I grew up with that mother that was, had me on like, you know, doing hypnosis and yoga and meditation since I was basically as long as I can remember. But since I was 18, she turned into this system called the Isha Judd system uh, that is basically like, you know, a meditation um, practice and toolbox, but it's even deeper. And uh, there's a series of like mantras, they call it facets, and you practice them and you have this practice with your eyes open throughout the day, with your eyes closed. I do at least an hour a day. Wow. Um, that I was so, and, and then I go to the center and I, I, I did do at some point six months of it straight, um, where I, I was, I had my grandmother passed. I separated from my husband mm. and, and I literally locked myself in the meditation center for six months. I think it's been a combination of having really strong cheerleaders being my mom and my grandmother and my family and a lot of internal work where I had to okay, Grace, come on, you have to trust yourself. You have to be your most important cheerleader. And, and really having that, which took a long time to develop that internal trust that everything was going to be okay. Um, but I think I've, 
at this point, I've proven myself enough times that I'm going to be fine. No matter where I go, no matter where I am in the world, I'm going to be okay. And it's so fascinating to hear that because it, it would sound like looking at it from outside. Obviously, you had an internal different perspective, but looking at you from outside, somebody who buys an apartment at 24, you know, figures out their way into MTV, should have should I'm quote unquote have the confidence and yet you were still doubting yourself and 100 and I still do don't get me wrong but even less now it's a little internal voice I think I think that the mind is it's like a broken record right the mind has grooves where uh, where it's always doubting somehow I think it's the job of the mind to to doubt but I now have an internal very solid experience called my consciousness I call it my consciousness which the, the Isha system calls it the consciousness that I know that I can tap into and not listen to my voice. So I can shut that voice down and say, it's going to be okay. Uh, but it took, it took me uh, that really deep six months of really truly healing myself. It's, it's a very deep internal process. It, it, it was very tough, um, but it's the best decision I've could have made for myself to to do that kind of work because now I know that any self-doubt or anything that is, oh, you can't do it or you're not good enough. Or not, it's a trick of, of my mind that I can laugh at and, and go deeper and, and say, oh, that's cute that you think you can do it because you can do it. Um, but it, it took me, it took me a, a, a long time and a lot of work and a lot of starting over. Right. You know, I, I, I felt like, I feel like in my lifetime, I've started over a lot yeah. um, and, and from scratch, literally, um, you know, from being from moving to starting, you know, over in a new country, you know, I started over in New Zealand. I started over in Costa Rica. I started over in New Orleans. I started over in New York. I started over when I got a divorce. Um, I started over when we lost everything. I started. So I feel like I've started, I've started over when I changed careers. So at this point, (laughs) you know, at this point I can trust that, oh, okay. I I, I do have a set of skill um, that I can apply. Thank God at anywhere. You know, I'm not going to starve that. I know now I have my, my production background, which is, I I love. And I have my cooking now skills that I, that I know I'm not going to starve anywhere. Um, because I can cook or I can produce. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, but I but it took me a very long time to to have that confidence. I'm not gonna, yeah. you know. And I think that I think it's a combination of things. I think that it has been very hard for me. It has been very hard for for me to to be where I am. To uh, um, you know, I'm a minority, and and I don't I don't like sounding like a victim at all. Uh, but, uh, but it is good to acknowledge that being a Latina my, you know, minority woman in this industry, being in the food industry, being in the entertainment industry has been very hard, very challenging. And so in that moment, when you were observing all those celebrities being unhappy and you were in New York and you were having the success and what was the thinking? What was the thought that came to you? How did you make the decision to transition? You know, well, the Food Network started becoming very popular. Um, and and I remember seeing the network and saying, I want to work there. Like, it's food. I love food. Um, I love to cook. And I get to work with food and TV. So 
I quit MTV without having a job at the Food Network and, and started asking around who knew someone who, and, and, and looking back, that was another really crazy move because I had very little savings and I lived in New York. I had a very bad accident where I almost, I got run over by a garbage truck on my bicycle where I almost died. So I was in debt. Oh, I was in a lot of debt trying to pay for that. Um, Talk about accident. starting over. Uh, my God. Exactly. And I had to sell my apartment to try to pay for the debt. Oh, God. And, and uh, um, it, it was, yeah, it was very traumatic. So I was like, what am I doing? And no one really knew someone until one day at a party, my ex-husband, who was my boyfriend back then, um, he was very supportive. And he was like, I'm going to ask everyone who knows someone. <laughs> and he he did. And, and he introduced me to a person who, um, Doug Scott, which I'm very grateful for. To who knew someone at Bobby Flay's production company. So um, then I got introduced to Kim Martin, who hired me a um, this lovely badass woman who ran Bobby's production company, who hired me. But I had to again kind of start over because I was already supervising producer, but I had to start as a associate producer. Mm -hmm which was hard because I was already kind of running the show and I had to start kind of like being a little bit more than a production assistant, but you know, it was, it was, it was a big step down for me. Um, but I didn't care. I just wanted to work with food. And, and that's when I fell in love with the chef worlds. Cause we got to travel all over America, finding the best of the best. So Bobby could compete with them. So we would find the best pancakes, the best, you know, fish tacos, Cuban sandwich. Oh, that's so um, fun. Lobster roll. So it was very fun. It was, it, it was a very hard show to produce because we would be two weeks on the road, two weeks here in New York. So two weeks on the road and literally having to carry pots and pans and, no and all this throughout. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was great, yeah. but it was, I mean, I can't complain. It was amazing. The, the exposure. And, and so I got exposed to the chef world and I loved it. I was fascinated by it. And so how did you, how did you have the guts <laughs> to, to, to then jump in front of the camera with all of that? It was, it was a little bit of, 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 of a tragedy <laughs> because it was um, everyone, it was the first master chef and everyone I knew because I would throw all these dinner parties and I would cook um, this feast. And as you mentioned, very in New York, not a lot of people cook. Yeah. Um, so I was like the only friend who cooked <laughs> um, for all my friends. So um, everyone around me said, oh, my God, there's this new show called The Master Chef. You should you should give it a go and be in front of the camera because everyone secretly knew that I I always wanted to be in front of the camera. But again, this whole self-doubt about I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not intelligent enough. Um, I'm just good behind the camera, but coming out I was that, I was, I was, I was that star child who loved being in front of the camera and I grew up doing TV commercials and I, I, I grew up in front of the camera when, when I was a little kid, oh. uh, because my family worked in the entertainment industry. So I did commercials for television and I used to model and I used to do all this and I loved it, but I just never, you know, being from Venezuela, unless you were Miss Universe you never felt pretty enough. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm not intelligent enough. That's proven. I'm not pretty enough, but I can, but- But, but I can cook. 
I can cook. <laughs> and I was good. I was a good producer. Yeah. I was, I, I did know that I was a good producer. Um, so, but I would, I was always that person who would write for the VJs. So you had it in you, you just need to bring it out. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, I always secretly wanted to be in front of the camera again, but I just felt like I couldn't. And then I gave MasterChef a go. I got casted out of 60,000 people and I made it to the show. It's just incredible. What do you think they saw in you? Why did they cast you? It fit the mold of the Latin girl. But funny enough, they wanted me to cook tacos, which um, I was like, look, I can cook tacos because I, I mean, first of all, I love tacos. Because who my, doesn't? My, my mom, <laughs> exactly. My mom has lived in Mexico and I have spent a lot of time in Mexico. Um, and I love that cuisine. But I was like, but my family's from Venezuela. So it, it was tricky for me. I didn't want to be disrespectful. But at the same time, it's kind of disrespectful to you. I mean, come on, you're Venezuelan, not, not Mexican. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I, I, exactly. So I was like, I was like, I didn't want to be disrespectful to my Mexican people and to my Venezuelan people. So that's so, hilarious. Um, so <laughs> and then I, I, I made I made a mistake to to choose the wrong dish it was it was a dish that was very complicated um to make in a short amount of time but um but i wanted to make my grandmother proud i wanted to make like venezuelan's uh national dish which is pabellon which is like shredded beef and the rice and beans and but it was very complicated like i don't know what i was thinking i just i was just obsessed with with trying to make my grandmother proud um and so i got kicked out of the show in the second episode so basically Gordon Ramsay made you cry on camera. Yeah, he, oh, he did as he does. Um, and then he kicked me out. But I remember the producer saying to me, you should do culinary school. You really are so passionate about this that you should go to culinary school. And I was like, and Gordon Ramsay said, you know, you should go to culinary school and come back to the show. I was like, I'm never doing this show again. This is brutal. But they were right. I wanted to do culinary school. And, but I was like, I'm never going to be able to do culinary school. I'm still paying my debt from my school. I'm still paying debt from my accident. Culinary school was $50,000. So I was like, there's no way. But in my depression of like, okay, I didn't win the show. Now what am I going to do? I started reading a Momofuku cookbook and I realized that David Chang had done, which was the same uh, culinary school that Bobby went to. They had done the French Culinary Institute. And I was like, well, let me look into it. So I read about the scholarships and I, I was like, well, I'm going to win that scholarship. <laughs> That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Tune in on Thursday for part two of this conversation where we talk about Zakapa rum, COVID, and creating your Instagram presence, and also about repurposing old skills for new careers. Find Grace on Instagram, check out her website, subscribe to our weekly newsletter, and never miss an event or an episode of the show. Also, check out our merch. The world is opening up and... I don't know, maybe you need a new t-shirt or a hat or something. All the links are in the show notes and on our website. And last but not least, don't forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know, someone who's switching careers and is anxious. 
or someone who's struggling with self-esteem and keeps telling themselves and you that they're not talented or smart enough, or someone who's like me, a fan of ballsy girls doing amazing things for the world. Just click share, text them a link, and remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week and keep staying safe. Love you all. Peace. Country, you can keep the rest. This is my country, my damn country, and it don't mean a thing.